0: This is the Plant-Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Dan Benardot, an internationally recognized expert on nutrition, specifically nutrition for peak athletic performance. Dan is currently professor of practice in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University and holds a PhD in human service studies and human nutrition, is a registered dietitian, and a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine. He has served as nutritionist for a number of different U.S. Olympic teams, including gymnastics, track and field, and figure skating. He was even presented with an Outstanding Educator Award by the USA Gymnastics Team following their gold medal performance in 1996. In addition to this, he was team dietitian for a professional NFL football team for several years. Dan has authored numerous scientific publications and has written many books, his most recent book being Advanced Sports Nutrition 3rd Edition. I've linked to several of these below in the show notes if you are interested. If that wasn't enough, Dan is the inventor of the NutriTiming software, which assesses real-time energy balance and nutrient intake. In this conversation, we discuss the negative health effects of energy deficiency in sport, the importance of striving for within-day energy balance instead of just monitoring calories on a 24-hour basis, why athletes shouldn't intermittent fast, how to lose body fat, not just body weight, common mistakes athletes make when it comes to sport nutrition, and why spreading out protein intake is so important. Dan also shares quite a few real-world examples of applying nutrition science to sport that come from his work with professional athletes. I personally learned so much from this conversation, things that I will be actively incorporating into my training going forward. I hope it is just as valuable to you. Please enjoy. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm really excited about all the things I've lined up to ask you about.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: Yeah. Um, So really looking forward to diving into some of your research and your work with athletes in particular. But first, I'm actually curious, when did your passion for sports nutrition begin? Did you have a sports background yourself?
1: Interesting question. I I was actually born in Greece. uh, thus the picture of the original Olympic Stadium behind me, uh, the Panathinaiko Stadium. And my family emigrated to the United States when I was a youngster. And when my father got his license to practice medicine in New York, we moved to northern New York near Lake Placid, New York, which is the home of the 1932 and the 1980 Winter Olympic Games. And um, rather cool environment up there. Uh, So, you know, you had a choice uh, of either skating or skiing. And I became an avid skier. I just loved it. And uh, so I guess my interest began as a growing child uh, on the mountains of uh, the Adirondacks in northern New York. And um, I actually wanted to work in food service administration so that I could work at a ski resort. So even though I graduated with a top New York State scientific regents diploma, which normally takes you to a scientific university somewhere, uh i my first degree was a, a two year degree in food service administration uh and uh two days after i got my degree i got a draft notice because the vietnam war was going on at the at that time and so i went to the draft board and i said is there any way i can keep my deferment and they said you have to show continuation and the only thing i could go into continuation meaning i i couldn't go into architecture or something like my, my First two years would have to be able to mainly transfer. And uh, the only thing I could go into was foods and nutrition. And I said, okay, foods and nutrition it is. And I I really ended up loving the nutrition science part of it. And I was always in my head trying to think about how it would help me and my fellow skiers. And never did I think at that time that I would end up with a PhD in nutritional sciences uh, from Cornell University. But, you know, I was lucky enough to get there and be there and get uh, some education from some of the best people on the planet. So uh, my interest has always been uh, looking at how nutrition might apply to very physically active people.
0: That's amazing. That's not quite the answer I was expecting, actually. Very cool. Um, So I guess, what was your first role working directly with athletes and not just, I guess, studying theory or um, doing coursework?
1: My first position, I was still ABD, uh, all but dissertation, uh, but I got a position at Western Kentucky University um, to uh, teach while I was finishing my dissertation. And uh, right away, people realized I had an interest in sports, so I was asked to work with the basketball team there. And uh, then I went to Illinois State University once I completed my a Ph.D. And at Illinois State University, the, the first month I got there, uh, a coach knocked on my door and uh, asked me if I would work with her team. She, she was brand new to the university. Uh, she had just adopted this team. She was a, a gymnast from Penn State University, and she was hired as a coach, a wonderful person. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm already been asked to work with basketball and, and football. I don't have time to work with another team. And besides, I don't know anything about gymnastics and she wouldn't leave my office. And I said, okay, here's the deal. You tell the football coach and the, and the basketball coach, I'm not working with them anymore because I'm going to be working with your team. And I thought nobody could be foolish enough to do that, but she did. And, um, so I ended up hiring, I worked with the three teams there, but the condition that I gave her was since I didn't know anything about gymnastics, that uh, uh, for me to work with the gymnastics team, we'd have to take a scientific approach to it and literally keep track of data, figure out what worked, what didn't work, because I wanted to learn myself about it. And there weren't really any useful nutrition of publications on gymnastics at the time. So I really wanted to treat it as a learning opportunity and she agreed. So we actually wrote our first article in a gymnastics journal and it was read by USA Gymnastics Administration and they asked me if I would work with the junior national team. And I said, okay, so same approach, you know, wanted to do it very scientifically. And then some of the people on the junior national team made it to the senior national team. And so they asked for me. So I was working with the senior national team. And I was actually, that was my first Olympic team. I I started working with the senior national team in 1992 and uh, was with them in 1996 when we got our first uh, team Olympic gold medal at the 1996 Olympic Games. And we did some things with them that were pretty different. I mean, we, you know, I mean, the when I I still remember this vividly when I watched my first gymnastics practice, it was five and a half hours, no food, no drink. And the uh, you could almost see the irritation rising over the course of the uh, practice, not just with the gymnasts, but with the coaches because they were hungry as well. I mean, they were all getting low blood sugar. And, you know, it's a long time to go without normalizing blood sugar. And uh, so it was pretty obvious that they needed a snack. And I I still remember this vividly when I suggested that they needed to have a snack about two and a half hours after they started their afternoon practice. They looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, you obviously know nothing about gymnastics. I said, no, but I, I do know something about human physiology, and you know, nutrition. And, and um, so I became a pest because they said no initially. And I just said, look, like, this is not working. So how about, uh, you know, just trying it? And eventually they said, okay, because they thought it wouldn't work. And then I would be quiet. And so we, we did a snack. And uh, I still remember this. One of the gymnasts uh, who had been working on this one vault that she hadn't gotten right the whole week was taken by the coach and said like five minutes after she had this snack. And she said, okay, do this vault. And I'm quite certain the coach was thinking that the gymnast would have projectile vomiting from the vault and food in her stomach. I was worried about that as well, but somehow magically magically. I mean, she didn't have the food long enough for it to make a difference physiologically, but uh she did the vault perfectly. And the coach looked at the other coaches and said, okay, we can do this this snacking thing. And we ended up having a rule where the gymnast would have to eat something about every three hours and would always have fluids available, you know, that had a little energy in the fluids. This is pre- uh, sports beverage time. I mean, it was long, long time ago, and they agreed. You know, so we ended up at the '96 Olympic Games with the tallest gymnastics team, the heaviest gymnastics team, because they were more muscular, and uh, the oldest gymnastics team because they weren't injuring as well. So they had a lot more experience uh, to do what they needed to do, and uh, it worked out very nicely for us. And then for five years after that, I was on the International Governing Body for Gymnastics on the Sports Medicine Committee. So I was traveling around looking at things. And I, it was one of the first things I did is I looked at the judges who are judging the gymnastics competitions, a lot of which are subjectively scored. And I thought to myself, oh my God, it would be terrible to be a, a team at the end of the day because these judges don't have anything to eat. They've been sitting at that table for a long time. And so I brought that up. And and now if you go to gymnastics meet there, you know, the judges have things to eat and snack on and, you know, keep themselves normal. So it's kind of the evolution of what has happened uh, has been very nice and and it's worked out uh, quite well uh, in a number of sports. I I, I think tradition is an inhibitor to doing the right thing. Uh, But if you stick at it, it'll work.
0: That's incredible. You've been a catalyst for such change. And I know as like a modern day athlete, it seems absurd to go for five and a half hours without even some water or something like that. so i'm I'm curious. was it what was the driving force between not allowing these athletes to have like snacks or water during their training? Was it more of like a traditional cultural thing, like a mental toughness building, or was it more a fear of influencing like their body weight or their exercise performance?
1: That's a good question. It, it's probably both. that is uh, and it's true. I mean, for every pound that you increase in weight, you you need an exponential increase in power to move it. So there is something to be said about staying small, but there's also something very important to consider. There's a difference between thinness and leanness, and they weren't making that difference there, right? Mm-hmm. So if we can keep people lean, uh, they still stay relatively small because muscle takes up far less space than the equivalent weight of fat, which is you know less dense. So you look more like you would want a gymnast to look, right, essentially. And that mm-hmm. was a big concern for them. But also from a coaching standpoint, it's easier to coach somebody who doesn't weigh as much because they don't need as much power to move that weight, right, because of mm-hmm. the physics reality, you know, there. Uh, so you know, part of it was that—that that is, you know, we want to keep these people small, so let's not give them food, you know. And the other reality, I think, was just tradition, exactly as you said. I mean, it's just, you know, the the coaches who are coaching at that level were very good gymnasts themselves, and I don't want to pick on gymnastics uh, because. I mean, in virtually every other sport that I've worked with, I've had the exactly the same thing, but, uh, you know, in, in virtually all sports, you get coaches who are coaching who were themselves athletes. So there's a perpetuation of strategies that were followed when they were athletes and there is not as much science behind it as there should be, you know, so kind of breaking through that tradition, I think ends up being difficult.
0: Yeah. So do you think that the way sport teams and athletes practice now lags behind what the science shows, like, do you think there's a bit of a gap that we still need to bridge?
1: Huge. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and there's still enormous misunderstandings about what constitutes good nutrition. I mean, if I stand before virtually any group of athletes, I mean, it doesn't matter what sport it is. Right. And I, and I say the word carbohydrate, there's almost no reaction. And if I say the word fat, there's kind of a frown. And if I say the word protein, everybody gets all excited, you know, because they, they really firmly believe that that's the secret to success. But what's kind of interesting about that is that they have no idea, no idea about how to eat it and how much they should have and when they should have it to optimize the utilization of protein that they're consuming. So it's not uncommon for people to have huge amounts of protein, but because of the way they're eating it, they're actually in a protein deficient state, Uh, even even though they're eating an enormous amount of protein, because they're using the protein to satisfy their energy requirement rather than to use it anabolically uh, to help tissue recovery, tissue repair, building tissue that they want to build, and so on. So Uh, lots of, lots of common errors that are still out there that I think there's, there are a lot of changes that we need to make.
0: That was actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, protein and our cultural obsession with it um, these days. So I guess from a Sports exercise point of view, or from your professional standpoint, as you know the research, how much protein should athletes actually be striving for? Like, is there, we often hear the words like 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight thrown around, or up to two? Like, what do you recommend to your athletes? And does it vary depending on the type of sport they're in?
1: I think we have to think about it contextually. Uh, That is, yes, the studies very clearly indicate that the anabolic maximum for protein intake is about 1.66 grams per kilogram of mass. But you only get that anabolic effect if you're in a reasonably good energy balanced state. So that if you consume that much protein, but you're consuming the protein when you're in a severe energy balance uh, deficit, then the protein that you're consuming is denitrogenated and you're using the remaining carbon chain to satisfy the energy requirement. So I think a really important thing to consider is that humans are energy first systems, that if, if you don't satisfy the energy requirement in real time, nothing that you do during that time is going to be useful nutritionally. Uh, It's not going to have the tissue effect that you're looking for because you're in a negative energy balance state, you're catabolic, you're breaking down tissue. And there's just because you're providing a single nutrient that you think will help. If you're breaking down tissue because you're in a catabolic state, you're not going to do anything anabolic with it. So yes, 1.66 grams looks like it's the anabolic maximum, but we can't think of it in 24 hour units because there's a limit to how much a cell can process at once. Right. So Mm -hmm. I would say a good average for most people, I mean, there's a range there from probably 20 to 30 grams per meal. But if people can figure out a way to satisfy the total energy requirement by spreading out the, spreading that out well, so you stay in a good energy balanced state, and also spreading out the protein intake in a way that you don't exceed the tissue's capacity to deal with it anabolically, then you resolved a lot of issues. So, you know, just to give you an example of uh, the current recommendation from most organizing bodies, American College of Sports Medicine, Dietitians of Canada, uh, is a range of protein intake of 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram of mass. Okay, I think that's a, a reasonable amount of protein for physically active people who are Uh, You know, hurting their muscle doing the work that they're doing. So they need a little extra protein to repair it. Uh, They need a little extra protein from some of the hormones that they need to produce more of because they're physically active and so on. So I, I think that's a reasonable range. But also, if you think about that, you need to distribute it. So it's not just getting two grams of protein per kilogram of mass, it's how can I get it in 25 gram units? As an example. So, if we took a 100 kilogram athlete and they wanted to get the maximum recommended protein intake of two grams per kilogram of mass, they would need 200 grams of protein. Okay. But if they need it in 25 gram units, they need to figure out how to eat eight times a day. (laughs) Right. Because that's where it becomes challenging. And that's the challenge. And, you know, part of the big problem is we're on this crazy, stupid, three meal a day pattern. And I mean that seriously. I'm not, I'm not just throwing that word out. I mean, three meals a day has nothing to do with human physiology, nothing, nothing, but somehow, well, I mean, they do call it three square meals a day and they call it three square meals a day because that's what you look like. If you eat that way, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. I mean, it was invented by the Industrial Revolution. It doesn't have anything at all to do with human physiology. You know, where they told people who are working in factories, have breakfast before you come to work. We'll give you a half an hour break for lunch, you know, during the day. And then have dinner when you get home. That doesn't have it. I mean, normal blood sugar, just doing what you and I are doing right now, Cass, we'll go from normal to too low in two and a half to three hours. Right? And if you're eating three meals a day, you're guaranteed to have low blood sugar when you have your lunch. And you're guaranteed to have low blood sugar when you have your dinner. And from a hormonal standpoint, that's terrible because when you eat in a low blood sugar state, it doesn't matter what you eat, you're going to be hyperinsulinemic for what you eat. And the appetite stimulating hormone, ghrelin, is only shut off if you have a normal insulin response to eating. So the fact that you have a hyperinsulinemic response, ghrelin is not shut off. So you end up eating more than you should because the appetite-stimulating hormone stays elevated and insulin is produced exponentially to the caloric load of the meal that you eat, right? So you become an insulin-creating monster and obesity is inevitable, you know, if, if you eat that way. And I'm I'm sorry to say, but, you know, luckily it's changing, but I still remember long, long ago where athlete cafeterias, you know, were three meals a day. You could go in three meals a day. Now, luckily, a lot of them are open all the time. So you can go in, get a snack, you know, and go in, get something else to eat, you know, because you need to figure out how you can eat to keep blood sugar normal to inhibit the insulin response so you don't become excessively fat from the energy that you're consuming. And it's inevitable if you're hyperinsulinemic that you're going to store a lot more fat than you would if you weren't. Uh, So figuring out how to eat, I think, is the real challenge. You know, to not just get enough protein the right way, but to stay in a good energy-balanced state so that the protein consumed can be used as protein, not as energy.
0: There is that I have so many follow-up questions, but thank you. Yeah, that, was, go for that was such a good <laughs> overview. Um, all right. So maybe touching back on what you mentioned about the hyper insulin response. If we go too long without eating, we get super hungry and then we eat more than we should. Our body overreacts with the insulin. And then subsequently we store more of this energy as fat, I'm assuming, um, so I definitely notice this myself. If I go a long time without eating, if I'm like doing a call shift or something like that, and then I come home and I, I definitely overeat. But, um, so I'm kind of, I guess my question here is we've, the culture has kind of shifted to more of this, like, it's okay to eat one or two meals a day and the whole intermittent fasting, um, I guess, fad or kind of thing that's taken off here. So do you, I guess, from your point of view, it is better to eat multiple small meals throughout the day, perhaps in three hour increments, as you suggested, rather than sticking to like one or two large meals. Is that that's fair to say?
1: Uh, I mean, the studies are very clear about this cast that um, people who eat more often eat fewer total calories than people who eat less often. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, very. Because when I I tell people, you know, you need to fit a snack in here and they say, well, if I keep eating snacks, I'm going to get obese. No, it's just the opposite. Because if you can keep blood sugar normal, amazingly good things happen, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be careful about confusing calorie reduction strategies with optimal nutrition strategies, right? And, you know, you mentioned Intermittent fasting, which is popular. and um, uh, for a class that I'm teaching, I looked up the most recent articles on intermittent fasting. There are about thirteen of them that have been published over the last year and a half, two years. And none of them went longer than two months following up on what happens to people when they do intermittent fasting. And there are two mistakes with that uh, in in those studies. One, mistake is that they're monitoring weight, right? And that's a mistake,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? Because if they say, look, weight loss, people think, well, that's good. That's not necessarily good. What you want is fat loss. You don't want to lose muscle as a result of the strategy that you're following. You want to lose fat. You want to become leaner, right? Not just arbitrarily lose weight, which is you know, you're going to lose both muscle and fat. That's not necessarily a great thing. Plus, you know, the fact that they only go two months, you know, there's a condition called adaptive thermogenesis. Are you familiar with that?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. So, you know, with adaptive thermogenesis, what happens is if I were to take a group of people and lower their caloric intake, let's say 30%, right? Uh, After a while, because I've reduced their typical caloric intake. You know, they're they're losing both muscle. I mean, one of the logical adaptations, if you don't give somebody enough energy, then the body has to figure out how can I survive on less energy? And the body does the right thing. It lowers the tissues that require energy, right? So you do lose muscle, you do lose organ mass. I mean, just to, to intervene just a little bit here on this. I mean, if you look at Autopsy reports of people who have died from anorexia nervosa, right? The weight of their heart is 50% of normal. The weight of their liver is 50% of normal. They have almost no muscle left, but what's left is relatively high fat level.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Why are they like that? They're like that because on such a low caloric intake, the body is trying to figure out how can I survive? And it survives by lowering the tissue that requires energy. Right, lean tissue. So, I mean, that has to be considered. But okay, so I've lowered caloric intake by 30%, right? Okay, but the body over adapts downward. So now it reduces energy metabolic rate by 35%, right? That's adaptive thermogenesis, right? So now you can go back up to your original weight on fewer calories, but what constitutes your weight is more fat and less lean, right? And so that's the kind of rebound effect that you keep getting with these diets, right? Where people lose weight, they regain it, then they go on an even more severe diet and they regain it and so on. Okay. So that's not particularly uh, healthful, but here's the problem. Adaptive thermogenesis takes three to six months to kick in. So these studies that only follow subjects right for one or two months that's a mistake and then they're measuring weight instead of what weight you know so i mean if somebody if an athlete comes up to me and says would you help me lose some weight my reaction is to kick them in the shin so i get their attention and ask them what weight do you <laughs> want to lose yeah do, do you want to lose muscle weight no do you want to lose bone weight no do you want to lose water weight? I don't know. Do you want, do you want to lose fat weight? Yes, I want to lose fat weight. Well, the strategy for losing fat weight and sustaining lean tissue is completely different than the strategy for just losing weight. So, one of the problems with, with intermittent fasting and, you know, is yeah, okay, you lose weight. But, you know what? Be very careful because eventually because it's just a calorie restriction strategy. That's really what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you're guaranteed with with the interval of time that you're asked to not eat, you're guaranteed that you're going to be in a low blood sugar state, which means that the next time you eat, you're going to be hyperinsulinemic. Why would you put yourself in that? Crazy. Plus, you know, from a, a mental acuity standpoint, why would why would you inhibit the fuel that's responsible for keeping your brain functioning right i mean if you have blood sugar is the primary fuel for the brain you get low blood sugar you think you're in a good mental state no you know it's the last thing you would want to do as students you know it's the last thing you would want to do with a physician who's in surgery right you want to keep normal blood sugar so that the brain can keep working perfectly right and, and almost all of those, quote, weight loss strategies, don't consider those things.
0: All right. That, that makes sense. So intermittent fasting can be effective for weight loss, but not necessarily body fat loss. And there's a huge difference there.
1: But only for a short time, because eventually you get adaptive thermogenesis. I will say that the studies almost universally said, look, it's useful for weight loss. Look at this, right? Mm-hmm. And you look at them and you go, wait a second. They're not measuring the right thing. They need to be measuring body composition change, not weight change. And they need to track the subjects longer.
0: So a question, follow-up question on that would be, were any of these studies done on athletes or were these mostly sedentary people? Because I feel like an argument I've heard is like, if athletes are using their lean muscle mass, then their bodies won't catabolize it. Is there any (laughs) research or evidence to back that up?
1: No, I mean, it's an... I mean, there's, there's ample research to show in athletes that if you're in a poor energy balance state, you will most definitely catabolize your muscle mass. I I mean, cortisol is elevated and cortisol is non-tissue specific. You lose bone mass, you lose lean mass, you lose fat mass. Good, good luck with that. I mean, you know, I mean, and it's a perfectly logical hormonal elevation. I mean, you're, you're, look, you're in a low blood sugar state. The brain says, wait a second, I can't keep track of what's going on here. I need a little bit more energy. So cortisol is stimulated. Tissues get broken down. The uh, gluconeogenic products, you know, those products that are, are not carbohydrate or glucose, which can be converted to glucose, like alanine, which is an amino acid uh, commonly found in muscle, the alanine to glucose cycle is very prominent in the liver, uh, you know, you get an elevation in those cycles, but but you've broken down lean tissue so that the brain can keep functioning. Why would you do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't understand, you know, the logic behind that is way off. I mean, yeah. I, I just don't get it. We, we did this study that was published a couple of years ago some colleagues uh, at the University of Copenhagen, uh, Ida Farenholtz was the lead author in that. And it was kind of an interesting study. She looked at female athletes, okay, all of whom ate enough. In other words, they predicted how much energy do they need to have, right? So those are the only people that were allowed to be in the subject pool. That is, they only took athletes who over the course of a 24-hour period consumed what they predicted they needed to consume to satisfy their energy needs. And then they did a more within-day energy balance analysis to see of those, of those athletes, is there a difference in hormonal outcomes when with between athletes who maintained a good energy balance state throughout the day versus athletes who had a big gap in energy intake and went into a relatively severe energy balance deficit during the day. Is there a difference between those? And they found, guess what? The calorie in, calorie out paradigm that we keep talking about over 24 hours is nonsense. What they found is that those females who achieved a th- minus 300 calorie energy balance deficit which is not very big right minus 300 calories those females uh, had lower estrogen and higher cortisol good luck with your bones and your muscle with that you know i i mean it's a it's very telling right significantly more cortisol and significantly less estrogen. I mean, estrogen is a natural inhibitor of osteoclasts, which are the cells that break down bone. You lower estrogen. Now those osteoclasts go wild. And so bone density takes a diet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've got elevated cortisol. And so you're breaking down other tissue as well. So we have to figure out how to keep people in a good energy balanced state, I would say. Very important.
0: Yeah, no. So fascinating, some of this research. And I think I'd like to just take a quick step back and maybe just define a couple terms because we've been, you've been talking about energy balance and 24-hour energy balance and within day. And I guess first, can we just talk about what relative energy deficiency in sport is? Because I think that's a term some people might be familiar. It's often called REDS. Um, so Red can heads. we just... Yeah. Red S, I guess. Sorry. Red S S, relative energy deficiency in sport. And can you just maybe give a broad overview of what are some of the negative health effects of having negative energy deficiency? Like you mentioned just briefly um, the endocrine dysregulation and the high cortisol and low estrogen and females in particular, but what other negative health effects are there not having um, sufficient energy?
1: Well, okay. So it's, it's not just not having sufficient energy.
0: Mm, okay.
1: I, I want you to think about this in real time. Okay, it's it, the the concept of red S relative energy deficiency in sport is not having enough energy to do what you're doing in real time. That is, if you're asking your body to do something, and you don't have enough energy at that particular time, okay,
2: that
1: mm-hmm. puts you in what is called a relative energy deficient state. Even if later you have enough energy. Right. Can I give you an analogy for this, Cass? Of course. Yes. Oh, okay. So where are you living right now?
0: I'm living in Edmonton, Edmonton okay. Alberta.
1: And I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. So I want you to imagine, Cass, that you have a car that you can talk to. Okay. And you tell your car, car, your tank is full. I want to drive to Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. But I'm in a hurry to get there. Uh, so I'm not going to stop for gas on the trip, but I promise you, I'll give you all the gas you needed for the trip. Once we get there, can you do that? Definitely not. Will your car get you there?
0: (laughs) No, I'll be stranded.
1: Okay. Okay. That's one conversation you can have with your car. Another conversation you can have with your car is car. Um, it's going to take about Four tanks of gas to go from Alberta to Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going to give you all the gas you need for the entire trip right now because I don't want to stop for gas once we get going. Okay, and the car says, "But my gas tank's not big enough." And you say, "Never mind. I'll give you more gas tanks." Well, in who in terms that's more fat mass, right? A third alternative is to say, "I'm going to fill up your tank before we start, and I'm going to stop about every 350 miles." on the trip to fill up the tank again as we go, okay? So that's analogous to RED-S. In other words, you, you have to make sure you never overfill the tank, but you also have to make sure you never let it run out, okay? So if your tank is run out of fuel that you need and you're asking your body to continue to do activity, we have adaptive mechanisms to make sure we can survive that activity but the survival outcomes are not good. You lose bone mass, you lose muscle mass, you increase fat mass. There, there, are, there are outcomes that are contrary to the athletic endeavor that make it extremely problematic. So, you know, if you look at some of the health consequences of red S, you get immunological problems. So uh, you get disease rates, That are far higher in athletes. And that's actually in the literature. You see that. I mean, athletes get sick uh, far more often than non athletes. And the reason happens to be red S, because they're negatively impacting their immunological system. As I mentioned, you get menstrual function issues in female athletes. In male athletes, you get a lowering of testosterone. Uh, So, a parallel study that was done at the University of Copenhagen lead author was Torstwit, uh, Monika Torstwied, Uh, And she did the same study that Ferenholz did on female athletes. She did it with male athletes. And she found essentially the same thing, that the, the male athletes had lower testosterone, higher cortisol, uh, lower testosterone to cortisol ratio. I mean, nothing good if you're in a negative energy balance state. So uh, the ability to repair muscle and build muscle is dramatically compromised. If, that occurs. So you get endocrine problems. Uh, you know, so you get an elevation in cortisol. You get metabolic problems because when you lower lean mass, uh, you excessively lower the rate at which you can burn calories, right? So because you get eventually that adaptive thermogenesis, uh, you're very likely to get hematological problems because you'll, you'll get a faster breakdown of red blood cells. Uh, So eventually your oxygen carrying capacity is going to be compromised. If you're a child athlete and growing and have the combined nutritional necessity to satisfy the needs of physical activity, plus the needs of growth and development. I mean, it's very clear growth and development are compromised, right? So you, you, get people who may permanently not achieve their predicted um, growth pattern, but you may also negatively impact their ability to develop muscle mass. So you may create uh, a lifetime risk of obesity, you know, when that happens. You get psychological problems, right? I mean, a common term that we use here, I don't know if you use it in Edmonton, but the term hangry.
0: Yep. (laughs) a little angry, bit for right?
1: sure so somebody has is hungry they have low blood sugar they get hangry right so mm-hmm. it's not nice to be around people you know like that so it compromises not only the person's health but it compromises the social relationships that they have around them because they're unpleasant you know to be with you get gastrointestinal problems right when uh, especially if you don't have enough energy when you need it and then you excessively eat later that excessive consumption of food later may create some GI issues that are problematic. So a whole series Mm -hmm. of health-related problems from Red S that are avoidable.
0: Essentially, every single thing that an athlete would be trying to optimize and improve seems to be negatively affected. So thank you. You made quite a case for making sure um, our relative, like we're in a relative Energy balance when we ask our bodies to um, perform and to train. Um, I'm curious because I know from myself and uh, my experiences, like um, a Muay Thai fighter in the past, and um, I've had my own problems with like menstrual dysfunction and things like that. It's a very common thing among female athletes, as you know. Um, I always believed that there's no way I could be in a state of energy imbalance if my weight was stable. I believe that, oh, because I'm not actively losing weight, I must be eating enough. And I was almost scared to eat more because I was worried that, well, I'll put on too much fat, and not be, again, not be able to perform at my sport where I want it to be. What do you say to these athletes? And is there any truth that you can, like, can you be in an energy deficient state, but maintain your weight?
1: Well, weight is the wrong metric
0: mm-hmm.
1: for one thing. So I would change the conversation and say, let's let's see what's happening to your fat mass. Let's see what's happening to your to your muscle mass. I mean, it, there was a time years ago when it was difficult to assess body composition and and track people to see what actually is going on. But that, I, I, you know, the fact that people can take weight, it's now just as easy, for instance, with a bioelectrical impedance analysis system to have a a picture of their body composition, you know, and how that's changing. So I would change the conversation and say, let's not talk about weight. Let's see what's happening to your muscle.
0: Right? Perfect. Yeah.
1: Uh, so I would do that. Uh and we have to consider I mean there's so much talk about weight, 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 you know. So my you know, weight, let's not talk about weight. Yeah,
0: sorry, you I know, used the wrong but, term, you know,
1: <laughs> but
0: <laughs> you just talked about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's so misleading. I mean, it, it creates such problems with what people think is the right thing because their weight may stay the same, but what if it's more fat and less muscle? while weight is maintaining itself, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll give you another thing that happens, you know, a lot with, you know, when we're assessing athletes, it's related to your question, okay? So <clears throat> let's say that we have the average body composition for a team and you measure an athlete and their body fat percent is higher than the team average, right? typically sports medicine people would look at that and say, okay, we need to have an intervention here. We need to figure out how to get her body fat percent uh, so that it's not higher than the average for the team. So let's say it's more than one standard deviation above what the team is. All right. But what if a month before that her body fat percent was even higher? And what if a month before that her body fat percent, was even higher than that. That athlete is moving in the right direction from a body fat percent standpoint. Why in the world would we intervene in an already successful strategy? We may stop the success that's happening. So one of the things that we have to do is have a way of tracking athletes so that we can look at trends of change. I, I can give you the inverse of that also. So Let's say we have somebody who's leaner than the team average. The temptation is to say, we don't have to worry about this person. They're a lean and mean machine. But what if a month earlier, they're leaner still? And a month before that, they're leaner still. They're moving in the wrong direction. Maybe we should intervene with that person just to see what in the world is going on. Right? So we make a lot of mistakes like that, you know, with, with, and also what we say, I mean, if I look at an athlete and I say, your body fat percent is too high, it's the end of the conversation. No matter what else I say from that moment forward, they're going to lower their food intake, right? And that could create even bigger problems. That could put them in an even bigger state of red S, as an example. Uh, but what if I turned that around? Body fat percent is the inverse of lean mass percent. Right. So if somebody has 30% body fat, they have 70% lean mass percent. What if I looked at somebody and I said, your lean mass, your muscle mass is a little lower, and I'd like, I'd like to work with you to help build, build some muscle with you. We'd like to do that. Now, all of a sudden, we got a conversation. Right. So it's not just what the individual athlete does, but it's also how the sports medicine team interacts with them. To make sure that we get the right outcomes. Uh, And we need trend changes. We need, you know, we need to change numbers into something that's graphs, you know, so that we can show them graphically what's going on with them, because that will have a lot more meaning than a few decimalized numbers. So I I think there's a lot that we can do as sports medicine folks to make sure that we're communicating in a way that will have the desired outcome.
2: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: So I don't know if that answered your question, Cass, that you had about, uh, you you know, wanting to keep, you know, the same weight. But to me, that means that you're not improving. Because what what I'd really like to know is, are you increasing your muscle weight, right? So, and in the process, keeping your fat weight the same, so your strength to weight ratio is improving. So, in almost every sport, having a better strength to weight ratio translates into better athletic performance. Right. So I, you know, I think we have to kind of change the way we think about some of these Mm -hmm.
0: things. Yeah, no, that was, that was good. Um, So I think my takeaway from that is we need to first be changing some of the terms we use, um, body composition is more important than uh, just absolute weight, of course. And then also reframing. So rather than trying to reduce body fat, increase lean muscle mass. And I think not having just a single snapshot in time to make these decisions is so important. So you need to be looking at trends over time. So that's, thank you, very important. Um, My follow-up question to that would be, we kind of talked about how within day energy balance is what we should be striving for as athletes rather than, I guess, this, what's traditionally seen as like a 24 hour energy balance where say we're aiming for 2,500 calories a day. If we end the day at that, we're happy. Mm -hmm. And what you've described is, okay, we could be at perfect energy balance by the end of the day, but how we got there could be vastly different. And that could be making... Um, negatively influencing our training um, if we're in large deficits throughout the day. So, I guess my question for that would be what are some of the strategies and things that you advise athletes so that they're ensuring that they're maintaining their blood glucose pretty steadily throughout the day and not ending up with these like large peaks and valleys?
1: Well, I mean, we're talking about energy, but um, there are cofactors related to that. So hydration, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you could kill two birds with one stone. So a lot of athletes drink water because they're afraid to drink a sports beverage because God forbid it has sugar in it, right? And the sugar will make me fat. You know, when somebody says that to me, I say, can I tell you all the other ways that you can get fat? (laughs) Like if you don't eat enough, your body fat proportion will go up right? Uh, If you eat when you're in a low blood sugar state, you're going to make more fat. If you eat too much at once, you're going to make more fat. It doesn't matter how much sugar you've got in there, right? So, you know, we tend to focus on sugar when we need to focus on the entire spectrum of the issues. Plus, if you learn how to drink a sports beverage, you get nothing but positive outcomes. But a lot of athletes... Don't know how to drink it, you know. They they wait until they get thirsty, and then they guzzle down a quart of sports beverage all at once. Okay, that's going to put you in a hyperinsulinemic state because you're getting too much sugar at once. I guess the the way I would think about this is is this is that the goal is to create normalcy rather than to recover from abnormalcy. Mm. So how can you eat and drink in such a way where you can maintain hydration state? I mean, we know that the second you start exercising, the sweat rate increases, right? Mainly because when you exercise and we're not very efficient at converting burned calories to uh, muscle movement, I mean, about, about 30%. So if I'm moving this muscle about, and let's say I burn 100 calories doing this over and over again right? About 30 calories actually moves the muscle. 70 calories is just heat creation. You just create a lot of heat. So the the more physical activity you do, the more heat you create. We can't acquire that heat. We have to dissipate it. And the way we dissipate it is through sweat, through the evaporation of sweat off our skin. So athletes know that they start sweating almost immediately. That means you need to start learning how to sip on a sports beverage almost immediately. You know. The other thing that happens is that they'll drink water. So I, I just, you know, that makes me crazy. So when you're physically active, blood sugar takes a dive. You lose electrolytes and you lose water. In what universe is it okay to lose three things and you only replace one? I, I mean, it, it makes very little sense to me.
0: When you, you put know, it so like I, that, <laughs> it's very clear, yeah.
1: You know, but you, you have to figure out how to learn to sip on something as often as you can, a little bit. You don't need a lot. Just figure out how to sip on it so that you can maintain a normal blood sugar, a normal hydration state, normal blood volume, right? Because the electrolytes will help to sustain a blood volume, which is very important from a cardiovascular stroke volume issue. So the you know, if you have a better heart uh, blood volume for every beat of the heart, you move More oxygen and nutrients to cells. So you sustain athletic performance better. As soon as blood volume takes a dive, which happens the more dehydrated you become, then the heart has to work a lot harder to move the same amount of oxygen and nutrients and remove metabolic byproducts. So maintaining blood volume with electrolytes ends up being hugely important. We've got to get past this, oh my God having a sports beverage with sugar is going to make me fat yes the way a lot of athletes drink it yeah probably will but if they learn how to drink it correctly it's the best thing that you could do right in terms of maintaining your athletic performance so i just bring that up as a as an important adjunct to sustaining energy balance right because if you learn how to drink during physical activity you're avoiding one of the negative aspects of a negative energy balance state which is low blood sugar right? Mm -hmm. So I I ask athletes to do this. You know, if they're afraid, I say, okay, you're afraid that if you eat more often, you're going to take in too many calories. Okay. Okay. You eat three meals a day? Fine. All right. So whatever you have for breakfast, don't eat it all. Take a little bit, have a little bit mid-morning. Whatever you have for lunch, don't eat it all. Take a little bit, have it mid-afternoon. Whatever you have for dinner, don't eat it all. Take a little bit, have it mid evening, and then have a little snack before you go to bed. Right. So that you're distributing the calories in a way that would better assure that you're taking care of your metabolic requirements in real time. Okay. And the inevitable result of athletes doing that, cast is that they say, oh my God, I feel so much better. Right. And then we can start talking about how we can move that food around. To satisfy the variations in energy expenditure associated with the physical activity that they're doing, they're less afraid to have those food interventions. And I hear all kinds of crazy things like, have you ever heard, don't eat anything after seven o'clock at night? Because if you do, it'll make you fat.
0: Yes. Because, well, my reasoning for that is like, we're more insulin sensitive in the morning. So if you eat it at night, why are you body- more
1: insulin sensitive in the morning? <laughs>
0: I'm not sure. I think it's just part of like our circadian rhythms.
1: Because you're in a low blood sugar state. Oh. Because the longest a person can go while they're asleep to maintain normal blood sugar, I've never seen a study that shows more than eight hours, right? So I want you to imagine that somebody doesn't eat anything after seven o'clock at night. And then they have breakfast at seven o'clock in the morning. You bet you're going to be in a hyperinsulinemic state because you've gone 12 hours, no human system can go that long. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, whoever said that wanted you to be fat. I mean, whoever said, don't eat anything. I mean, if you look at, I'm very familiar with a Mediterranean diet because that's what I was brought up with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know, you have breakfast, you have a mid morning snack, you have lunch, you have a mid afternoon snack, you have the first dinner, you have the second dinner, you have a little something before you go to bed right what's interesting to me about that is people keep talking about the mediterranean diet and saying it's beneficial because of the components of the diet less red meat more fish more fresh fruits more fresh vegetables i agree with all of that yes but they're missing a very important point is that they're not eating three meals a day they're spreading it out throughout the whole day and they don't eat too much at once right so they're avoiding energy deficiency at any time during the day so that they can keep a normal hormonal response going. Right. So Cass, let me ask you this. If you had a baby and you wanted to put the baby to bed, would you put the baby to bed without feeding it?
0: Definitely not. (laughs) No, no,
1: no. The baby would become irritated in a Mm -hmm. very short period of time and would wake you up.
0: And yeah, you would not have a good night of sleep. That's for sure.
1: Right. Right. So that's an exaggeration of what happens to humans, right? So if you're in a low blood sugar state during the night, you're agitated because cortisol is elevated. The body is trying to figure out how can I keep, you know, you have bad dreams. You you don't sleep well, you're restless, right? But if you have a little something just before you go to bed to maintain liver glycogen and blood sugar, then you sleep better. Plus, You're not going to be hyperinsulinemic when you have breakfast because you've maintained blood sugar over the night, right? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's actually super useful because I know I've, even myself, I try not to eat too late at night because I've been thinking like, well, I'm going to have poor, like... Um, consequences on my body composition and things like that. And I prefer to, I guess, front load my calories. But as an active person, like it's nice to hear that it's okay to have something before bed and it'll actually have beneficial effects. So thank you. I think that's something that's, it's a misconception that's quite widespread these days.
1: Very widespread, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. for
0: sure. So I guess, okay. So another question I have for you is, I think we you mentioned it briefly, but if you have an athlete that does want to Um, improve their body composition. So increase lean muscle mass, decrease their body fat percentage. I guess just an overview of how would you do this in a way that ensures that they're actually losing body fat and not just body weight. So is there an optimal caloric deficit? Do you recommend just like shaving a little bit off each of their meals? Like how do you um, guide your athletes for this?
1: Uh, Well, I I do a real-time energy balance analysis. Uh, with them, how outside. how is
0: that done? Just
1: I created a software package side. called NutriTiming.
0: Okay, yeah, I did come across that. Uh,
1: that does an hour by hour energy balance analysis, but it also does a, a real time nutrient intake analysis as well, which is increasingly become useful. And I'll explain that in a second. But you know, I look at you know, are they how many? You know, are they? within the desirable range of energy balance. Okay. And do they have as much time in an anabolic state as they do in a catabolic state? You know, how, how Mm -hmm. is that? And basically I try to modify the diet so that they spend one or two more hours. If they want to increase muscle mass, One or two more hours in an anabolic state, but not to exceed the desired energy balance state, just a little bit above zero one or two more hours above zero than below zero. And we have to consider that muscle mass changes very slowly, so you don't want to overdo it and that's what happens with a lot of athletes who want to increase muscle is that they way overdo the total amount of protein that they're consuming subtle okay so uh just one or two more hours in an anabolic state than in a catabolic state, and then if you want to lose fat but keep your muscle, then you want one or two more hours in a catabolic state below zero than in an anabolic state you don't want to make that difference too big because if you spend too much time in a catabolic state you're going to end up with low blood sugar right mm-hmm. so it's got to be a very subtle difference because the body actually changes in a very subtle slow way right so you have to keep in mind the way the body actually would manifest those changes that you're doing but if you consistently do that guess what you start losing fat and you keep the muscle that you have because you're you're still having enough time in an anabolic state so that the muscle can can maintain itself but you spend one or two more hours in a catabolic state where the body is forced to use a little bit of a little bit more fat to satisfy the energy requirement
2: perfect
1: in, in both examples you have to stay within a good energy balance state the whole time it's just how much above or below zero subtle you know you're you're making those changes. And I wanted to mention the nutrient thing. I mean, a lot of people take a pharmacological approach to nutrition, which increasingly is showing itself to be problematic because you can get a, a decreased tissue sensitivity to nutrients, which are often being provided in very, very high doses. I mean, that far exceed the, the cellular capacity to deal with them in real time. And there's some new evidence that some nutrients uh, taken in high doses may actually be problems from a disease standpoint. So I'll give you an example. So there's some recent studies that have looked at folic acid, right? It's a water-soluble vitamin. People think, ah, no problem with water-soluble vitamins. If you have too much, you'll just urinate away the excess. Fine. Well, these, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you know, if somebody has been diagnosed with cancer, one of the first things they try to do is inhibit the amount of folic acid that you take in because folic acid is a new cell generator, and if they've already got a lot of cancer cells, the last thing that they want to do is feed those cancer cells with a new cell generator. so anyway if you if you look at folic acid, studies are showing that if you have the recommended intake, in a single dose. So if you take a supplement, you know, you're probably going to get 100% of the RDA in a single dose, which is 400 micrograms in a day, all right? But you're going to get it in, in one dose, right? But if you have it that way, you increase cancer risk over time. But if you have exactly the same amount, 400 micrograms, but distribute it in 100 microgram units spread out throughout the entire day. You end up with healthy cells and you decrease cancer risk, right? So it's not just how, I, I, one of the problems that we have is that the recommended dietary allowances are listed in 24-hour units. And, you know, that's, I'll give you an example. So let's say this is a cell. Okay, this is my glass cleaner, but, you know, let's, let's say that this is the, the capacity of a cell. And let's say that this is the daily requirement.
0: Right. So just, just for those that are just listening here, he's holding up a little bottle of glasses cleaner and then he's holding up his mug of coffee as well, which is much bigger than the glasses cleaner. Right. Continue. So
1: you can't put this in this all at once, right? There's no place for it to go, no. <laughs> right? So, uh, so I think even with nutrients, not just with energy, we have to start thinking about what is the, we have to think about it in real time. We have to ask ourselves how much and when right? Not just, okay, I've taken a supplement, now I've satisfied my daily requirement for that nutrient. No, that, I think increasingly the studies are showing that that's potentially not just problematic, but potentially dangerous. So I, I think we have to take a food first approach to learning how to eat so that the a wide variety of foods the, eat many things, you know, chronically so that the tissues can be exposed to all of the nutrients and phytonutrients that they need uh, to make sure that the energy distribution is good. I mean, most athletes don't realize this, but the, the limiting energy substrate in athletic performance is not protein. It's carbohydrate. You know, is how, how can we get enough carbohydrate at the right time into the athlete so that they can sustain their performance? That's really the critical issue. And we have to figure out how can we give it to them how can we plan so that they have it at the right intervals so that performance will be enhanced rather than compromised
0: that's fascinating actually i didn't realize some of that research about the folic acid and it's yeah it's so important that we start thinking of things on like an hour to hour basis rather than in this like obscure 24 hour model that i'll give you, <laughs> you another raised. example yeah. that's
1: more athlete related if you want Perfect. To test. okay yes. so um You've heard of whey protein isolate, mm-hmm. okay? Whey protein isolate is the highest biological value protein an athlete or anybody can consume. So one of the protein sources that a lot of athletes go for because they know it's a high biological value source is whey protein isolate, right? And you know the interesting thing about that is if you have about a hundred calories of whey protein isolate, about twenty-five grams. That's a, that's about the maximum amount of leucine presentation to cells that a, an average human can tolerate, right? But because athletes think that more than enough is better than enough, they'll very often have two scoops, you know, and they end up getting the opposite of the desired effect because of that.
0: That's fascinating, actually. Um, So my question to that would be, I'm actually a plant-based athlete, so I don't use whey protein. Sometimes I'll use like a plant-based protein or pea or hemp or such. So Uh is this, um, I guess, from a vegan athlete perspective, is it important? Like, do we have the risk of overdoing our leucine content if we're overdoing these like plant-based protein powders as well? Or is this more something that you'd run into more often if you're using whey protein?
1: Definitely. Uh, I mean, leucine is, is overrepresented in whey protein. And there are good vegetarian sources of leucine, you know, so uh, legumes, for instance, mm-hmm. are, you know, contain leucine, but not at the same concentration as you would find soy, you know, contains it, peas, beans, chickpeas, lentils, you know, they all contain. So, um, you know, I get this uh, vegetarian question a lot and um there's so many good athletes who are vegetarians you know there's nothing wrong with it Mm -hmm. right it's just that you have to know what you're doing right it 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 may be just a little bit more difficult to get what you need unless you know what you're doing and variety ends up being critically important as well right so Mm -hmm. that you can make sure that you've exposed the tissues with all of the essential amino acids all the vitamins and minerals and from a vitamin and a mineral standpoint, it may actually be easier if you're a vegetarian than not you know, to get what you need. But it's basically, it's an education issue that's certainly possible. Just need to know what you're doing. And the nice thing about being a vegetarian is that you're more likely to get what you really need if you're an athlete, carbohydrate. Yeah,
0: very true. All um, right, so Yeah, I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, so I guess just that's fascinating with, um, the importance of just eating small meals frequently is important for optimizing body composition and not overstoring all this, um, excess calories as fat, but also important from a muscle protein synthesis point of view. Like that's, that's crazy. It checks all the boxes. And I love your emphasis on carbohydrates too, because, um, like, again, we've, we're in a culture where protein is the obsession. And I think having more of an emphasis on carbohydrates is big. So thank also, you.
1: people, you know, when you say carbohydrate, they're, they're kind of thinking bread. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I, not too long ago I was talking to an athlete, you know, and I said, look, uh, I really want you to increase your carbohydrate intake. Right. And they said, well, won't that make me fat? I don't want to have any more bread. So I said, well, okay, then tell me what you eat. Right. And the first thing he said was, well, I just had a big salad for lunch. And so they don't realize that they're eating carbohydrate. I mean, they they kind of have a very narrow perspective of what carbohydrates are. Uh, So I think we could be a little bit more expansive in explaining that fresh fruits and vegetables. It's not just eating, you know, those highly refined grains that give you the carbohydrate that you need, you know, so.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. I missed this (laughs) episode. Um, as we kind of, uh, wrap up here, th- this has been amazing. Um, we didn't, we haven't even talked about some of uh, your work experience that I understand you worked for several years as a team nutritionist for a professional football team. And I'm like, would love to talk about this a little bit more. We talked a little bit or at the beginning of your work with gymnastics. And I think it's fascinating to go from gymnastic athletes to professional football players. Like it's, if quite a different, um, athlete, different sport for sure. Um,
1: so they're, they're both anaerobes, (laughs) you know, I mean, they both, I guess just, body type, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they're both power athletes, you know, so very true. How
0: how many years did you work with this uh, professional football team?
1: Well, it was kind of interesting, but, uh, the national football league, uh, created a requirement that they wanted a registered dietitian, uh, to be associated with every team. Okay. And they made it a requirement. So I I got a call, uh, from the management saying, would, would you be interested in working with our football team? Uh, as you know, we need a dietitian. I said, no, I'm a professor. Thank you very much. You know, I, I don't have time to do that. Uh, and they called me back a couple of days later and they said, you know, your name keeps coming up and the athletic trainers have your books and they would love to have you, you know, and I said, well, I'll do it as a research project, you know. So if you give me enough money to release my time, some time from the university, and for me to hire five graduate students, uh, then you know I'll I'll do it. So I did it for five years, just before I retired, uh, and it was an excellent uh, experience. I mean, they I, I was lucky enough to work with a very talented strength and conditioning coach who was very open to modifying what was done. As a matter of fact, he's he's now the head strength and conditioning coach at another team. And he was made responsible for designing a new facility. And he incorporated nutrition into the training facility, which is kind very of- Very cool, yeah. Yeah, it was very cool, you know, what was happening. Uh, so, you know, one of the, I mean, it's basically everything that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was- Uh, A a lot of problems with sustaining energy balance, uh, issues related to hydration because uh, the NFL has a contract with Gatorade. So, you know, Gatorade was available, uh, which is fine, you know, but they had to learn how to drink it. And they also, a lot of them preferred water, which is potentially compromising in terms of performance if you're not consuming the right stuff at the right time. Uh, and so we, you know, there were a lot of changes that, you know, were made. So we made food more available. Uh, we made snacks more available. We made sure that they had snacks available in the strength and conditioning room and beverages available. And so when they were working out, they could have something. We made sure that the people who were assisting on the field, uh, that they would look chronically at, at different, they were assigned to different players to make sure that the different players would be drinking something with some relatively good frequency. So they didn't, they were looking for players who weren't consuming anything, uh, during the practice. And we actually had a pretty good outcome. I mean, it was a, it was a very nice, uh, five years, wonderful group to work with. Um, the management was superb and very open to making changes. And, um, So it was a, it was a good experience. Plus it was great for my graduate students because they got to work and get data on, you know, what was actually happening with professional athletes, you know, so they, uh, they learned a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, what these athletes were traditionally doing. And we tried to change that tradition.
0: That's that's very cool, very fascinating. i um, Was there anything that made working with these athletes in particular more challenging than, say, your work with the gymnastic athletes, or um, I believe you worked with figure skating or track and field as well? Like, I, I, did anything yeah, stand I, out? Know, I was the
1: yeah I was the nutritionist for the marathon team at the 2004 Olympic Games. The and the marathoners finished in that stadium right behind me, the Panathinaipa stadium. It was the first time in the history of the United States we won two marathon medals at the same Olympic games. So that was kind of cool. And then after that, I was asked to work with figure skating. And I was with USA figure skating for quite a long time because they'd never had a medal in uh, dance. And so that's changed, but you know, it, it's, it's been a variety of different athletes and using the word more difficult or more challenging. No, every group is different. And every group has its own set of, I would say traditions in terms of what they do and how they do it. But, and every group has a different set of problems. I mean, some of the things that you would never imagine. Right. So by the way, I would have to say that literally every coach that I worked with once they understood why I was suggesting what I was suggesting, they kind of went, Oh, gee, that's okay. Let's try that. Okay. So, but sometimes they're an inhibition. So with figure skating, they didn't allow sports beverages on the ice, you know, uh, near where the skaters were practicing. So they just grab a bottle. You know why? No. Because they were afraid that the bottle would fall on the ice and discolor the ice. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So such a like simple reason. Right. I mean, and you kind of think about it as, oh, okay, because that ice has multiple functions. I mean, the skaters mm-hmm. are practicing from five o'clock to you know eight o'clock in the morning, and then again late at night. But then the middle of the day, they've got hockey teams playing, and you know, so you know, you, know, you want the ice to be as you know clean and line savvy as as possible. Uh, but you know the solution. Once you understand that, you say, "Okay, we we'll just use clear sports beverages, you know, so the discoloration is not a, a problem." So ev- every group has slightly different issues, but they're resolvable. You know, with with football, it's it was protein supplements. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, protein supplements. But here's the interesting thing: if you I mean, protein potentially is a carrier of calories,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? I mean, you get four calories per gram. The problem is it's dirty calories because you have to denitrogenate it in order to use the carbon chain for energy, right? So it's actually dehydrating because you have to excrete the nitrogen, the urea, right? Because it's potentially toxic. So blood urea, nitrogen is elevated. You have to get rid of it, right? So. but it's calories, right? So, one of the things I found is okay, if I'm going to tell an athlete to do away with those supplements of protein that they're taking, one of the things I learned is I better calculate the calories that they're getting from that protein because it's probably most of it is being used as calories, not anabolically as protein because of the way that they're consuming it. Mm-hmm. But I have to insert those calories into my calculations for what they're doing, because if I remove three or 400 calories because of the supplements that they're taking in, they're going to be in an energy deficit if I don't figure out a way to replace it with something else at the right time, right? So there are issues like that that you kind of look at, and I hadn't thought of before, mm-hmm. but, you know, are important to consider.
0: That's that's very interesting, actually. I wouldn't have thought of that either. Um, I, one follow-up question to the, the football team. Um, my younger brother is a huge NFL fan, and he was Curious, actually. Um, I know you can't talk about individuals, but just in general, were there any players or individuals that were, that were like head and shoulders above the rest? Like what separated the great players from the good players from what you saw working with the team? Like were there any little things?
1: Well, I mean, they're all pretty good if they're going to be at that level. I Very mean, they, they don't, you know, they're not going to get to that level unless mm-hmm. they have exceptional talent for the position that they're in uh so you know what differentiated their performance i mean they all had talent mm-hmm. right so nutrition is just one of those factors that could influence their performance so what they did to sustain themselves so that i i give you an example nfl typically has a pre competition meal a pre game meal which is you know they started 4 hours before the game time right that's very important that that pre-competition meal where all the team is together all the coaches are together they can talk to each other the coaches have everybody there everybody's on the same page in terms of this the strategy for playing against their opponent you know it's a very important thing but it's too early because Blood sugar is going to fluctuate after that. I mean, they're in a stressed state, so they're going to get a low blood sugar two hours after that, right? Because yeah. they're, they're using sugar at a faster rate in their blood. So one of the things that I did is I had to figure out how can we get people to start the game with liver glycogen full, with blood sugar normal, and hydration state good, right? If we could do those things and then figure out how to sustain them, during the game and and take advantage of halftime so that they could have a reasonably good second half. That would be critically important. So we actually introduced some nutritional interventions after the pregame meal and before game time to make sure that they would start in a good state. And then we, we had some interventions, of course, during. So we tried to do away with the water and just make sure that they would have something to learn how to drink on the sports beverage. And then we had an intervention during halftime, but because there's not that much time during halftime, our intervention, as the athletes were walking into the room where the coaches could talk to them for halftime, we would hand them what we wanted them to consume so that they would have it from the very beginning. So they wouldn't have to sit and get up and look for it. And Right. So, You know, every sport, every team has different opportunities like that to have an appropriate intervention and uh, figuring out how to do it and getting people on the same track and getting management to say yes. Usually I have found that if you give them the scientific reasons for why you're doing it, why you think it's important, and you have to convince them that it's not going to hurt anybody right? They're not going to have to take a bowel movement in the middle of the third period. I mean, they're, you know, there's, you can convince them. Uh, then what I have found is that they're normally very cooperative, you know, so they want the best for their team. You just have to have convincing arguments to do it.
0: Yeah, it seems like you've had so much success throughout your career and some of these strategies. Definitely, be, I'll be implementing them in some of my training upcoming. Um Question though, Um, the sports drink that you recommend, do you have a particular like recipe or particular brand that you recommend to your athletes? Or if someone is listening, is thinking about like, what should they be looking for on the label? Are there, do you have any tips for them?
1: Yeah, I I would say beware of high fructose corn syrup. Okay. Uh, Because high fructose corn syrup, um, I don't know if you know the metabolic pathways, but you know there are three primary metabolic pathways for high fructose corn syrup. So the first pathway is that the liver converts the fructose to glucose and it's stored as liver glycogen, right? That's desirable. So you know that's that's very cool, but liver storage of glycogen is limited. So if you have an elevated intake of fructose, then once once the liver has maxed out it's uh, glycogen storage. Then the second pathway is that you make triglycerides, so which are stored mm. in the liver and also show up in the bloodstream. So it elevates blood lipids. From a long-term standpoint, that's bad. But the third pathway, because the liver doesn't like to store a lot of fat, uh, is that you convert the fructose to uric acid, and uric acid uh, gives you joint pain, which is the last thing. it's basically gout. It gives you a fructose-related gout-like symptoms, that's the last thing you want an athlete to have, right? So I would be very cautious about uh, beverages that have high fructose corn syrup as the primary source of carbohydrate. Uh, you'd want the uh, the average tolerable limit for carbohydrate concentration is a 6 or 7% carbohydrate solution, so you wouldn't want to have anything above that. Uh, The difference between a seven percent carbohydrate solution and an eight percent carbohydrate solution, from a gastric emptying standpoint, is significant. So that one percent difference, things are going to stay in the stomach a lot longer, and that can be problematic. Um, So I would say six or seven percent is a starting point. Remember that with all studies, there's a normal distribution, right? So that's the starting point, and you know, somebody maybe can tolerate a little bit less, right? So you have to figure out what's the tolerance limit for each individual, but I've never seen, I've only had maybe one or two athletes who were unable to tolerate a six or 7% carbohydrate solution. And then you want a sodium concentration of somewhere between 100 and 200 milligrams per 240 milliliters per per cup. Uh, So the longer the duration of the activity, the higher the sodium concentration, because the greater the risk of low blood volume. So the higher uh, blood volume is normalized on the concentration of sodium, which is consumed. So, you know, like there are beverages now that advertise themselves as endurance sports beverages, and they typically have somewhere between 180 to 200 milligrams per deciliter. I'm sorry, milligrams per 240 milliliters. Uh, So, you know, that works pretty well. Uh, If it's a short endurance. You know, uh, the other thing I want you to consider is, is, uh, you know, a lot of sports beverages have like 50 milligrams of electrolytes in it. Useless. (laughs) It's not going to do much, you know, but... But they typically taste sweet, not salty. And guess what that does? Makes people want to have it. Right. Yeah. So, so here's the secret to this. Okay. So, I'll give you an example. You know, with the marathoners that I worked with for the 2004 Olympic marathon team, um, we calculated how much carbohydrate and sodium it was you know, between 90 and 95 degrees, you know? So we calculated, I mean, it's basically the the course from Marathonas to the Panatheniaco Stadium. The first, it's 26.2 miles, right? So the first half of the race is uphill.
0: Brutal. Right? I mean, it's
1: brutal, right? In that temperature, right? And looking into the sun. And then you kind of turn to the left and you start going up and downhill into the Panathinaikos Stadium where it finishes. So the you know the athletes were accustomed to consuming they get to drink about every 5 kilometers and they were drinking you know depended on who it was somewhere between 4 and 8 uh, ounces of sports beverage every 5 kilometers and when we did the calculation i thought oh my god we have to figure out how to get them to drink three times more than they're drinking at a minimum three times more or they're just not going to be able because If you can't keep your sweat rates up, what's the one thing you have to do? You have to slow Slow, down. Slow down, which is not a great way to win anything. You know, so, you know, we had to figure out how can we keep them reasonably well hydrated so that they keep their sweat rates up. But you can't do it suddenly. So what we did is we created criterion courses for them where they would run out two and a half kilometers, run back two and a half kilometers, grab something off the trunk of a car and Go another two and a half kilometers back. So they would practice in training what we wanted them to do during the marathon itself. And every week we would increase subtly the amount that they were consuming. And we also did what was what we now refer to as a grab and carry strategy. So they used to grab the bottle, take a couple of sips, pour it over their head, you know, and then throw it away. And so what we got them to do is to grab it and to carry it with them and just keep sipping on it the whole time. And then they'd come to the next five kilometer, uh, hydration station. And by that time it should be finished. So they had to practice that, you know, to optimize it. And I know, most people don't realize this, but the U S women at the 2004 Olympic games, if you look at their combined time, if there was a team medal, we would have won the gold medal. And, and the same thing for the men. if, if you looked at the U S men's time, we would have won the team gold medal if they had one. As it was, Meb lazindi won the silver and Bina Castor won the bronze. And it was great. I mean, we, we were extremely pleased with their amazing performance. So they were wonderful athletes and great to work with. And so that made it a total pleasure to, to do, but you know, you got to follow the science.
0: Yeah, that's remarkable actually. And I think really just in some of these stories you've shared, it just goes to show how like these small changes can be the difference between like the podium and missing the podium. Like these athletes are on such a high level that any incremental improvement, like whether by staying hydrated or being able to keep up your sweat rate can like be the difference. So it's been so cool hearing some of like your, your stories, not just, understanding the research but how it practically applies to athletes in the real world. So, thank you, Dan. Um as pleasure, like guys. this has been so good. Like I'm I've taken so much away from this conversation and I really hope a lot of people listening can like take some practical advice and apply it to their own training. Um as like I guess we close out here, is there any one thing that you would like people listening to take away from this or any lasting thoughts you'd like to leave people with?
1: Just to follow the science uh and figure out how to apply it in a way that is acceptable to the people you're working with right i mean i uh just be wary of traditions you know because traditions often uh make people comfortable but they may be contrary to optimal performance so we have to you know, follow the science. I guess we can do that. Can I say just one more thing? Of course. Yeah. I grew up very close to the Canadian border, south of Montreal. And uh, it's it's a real pleasure for me to be doing this with you because I grew up thinking that I was Canadian because <laughs> all of the television and all of the radio that I would get in the small town I lived in just outside of Lake Placid, was from Canada, <laughs> so, That's so so cool. <laughs> it's, it's been a real pleasure for me, Cass, to to talk with you and to share my thoughts with you.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, this has been so good. Um, if anyone listening wants to learn more about some of your work, read some of your research, I'll link to some of those articles you mentioned and some of your um, books as well in the show notes. People can just click there. But is there anywhere you would like to guide people to, or any of um, your book? You've written a lot of books, but anything specifically you'd like to recommend, or um, recommend that people check out?
1: Well, my most recent book is the third edition of Advanced Sports Nutrition um, that came out twenty twenty end of 2021. And I'm working on the second edition of the American College of Sports Medicine's Nutrition for Exercise Science. So I should be done with that this year. And so I think it'll come out at the end of this year or beginning of next. But, you know, I, I would say do exactly what you said, which is, Read the science. Okay. I mean, try to try. A lot of people have kind of traditional misperceptions about what to do, like that. You know, what you mentioned about eating something in the morning, you might be mm-hmm. more hyperinsulinemic. But if you think about it, you say, oh, this is the reason I'm hyperinsulinemic because I didn't eat anything for 12 hours. Uh, I, I think we have to uh, kind of have a a new view of nutrition, not just for sport, because I think this has public health implications as well, but how can we satisfy our nutritional needs in real time so that we don't overload the cell and we never let it run to empty? It's kind of like that car, right? So you have to keep it fueled. You have to keep the vitamins provided in, in a level and at a time that the cells can deal with it. And that involves eating strategies, and, but it involves one other thing. It involves planning and we have to eat in a way that's outside the normal three meal a day paradigm. And that's what makes it difficult. Right. So planning.
0: We need to change the culture. I like it.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you, Dan. This has been so great and I really appreciate you spending all this time with me.
1: My pleasure. Have a great one.
0: That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope it was valuable to you. Please remember to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and links to connect with our guest. If you would like to support what I'm doing, the best way to help me grow the show is to subscribe, of course, but also share it with your friends and family or on social media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also leave a five star review and or a comment. A special thank you as always to Tyler Gatto for composing the theme music for the podcast and to Wyatt Pavlik for the excellent audio engineering each and every episode. So until next time, keep training hard, keep eating plants and take care.